Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. A troop of Eagle Scouts from Chicago made the trek to London in 1957 to participate in an annual variety show hosted by the royal family to raise money for charity. Front and center was 13-year-old John Edward Robinson. The Chicago Tribune headline in big, bold letters that day stated, Chicago Boy Scout leads troop to sing for Queen. Before the show, John met Judy Garland in her dressing room and she gave him a big kiss. And Gracie Fields, a popular British actress and singer, asked if he had plans to visit Italy. John replied that when he finished his priesthood studies, he would certainly visit Rome. But John didn't become a priest. Instead, he became a con artist and serial killer. At age 21, he married Nancy and worked at a hospital in Chicago. Together, they had four children. He coached their sports teams, was a Sunday school teacher, and a scoutmaster. John's criminal record started in 1969. Over the years, he embezzled from his employers, forged checks, got caught for mail and securities fraud. ABC News reported that when John was 33 years old, he was awarded Man of the Year. A big banquet was held in his honor at a hotel in Kansas City. Only problem was, John hadn't been named Man of the Year. It was a lie, an honor he bestowed upon himself. Paula Godfrey was a young, beautiful teenager, blonde and blue-eyed. The Charlie Project recalls after high school, she set her sights on pursuing a business career. And in 1984, John advertised in the newspaper for a sales representative for his consulting firm in Kansas and hired Paula. On September 1st, John picked Paula up at her house to drive her to the airport for training in Texas. Paula never arrived in Texas, and when her family didn't hear from her, her father went to John's office and demanded that his daughter contact him. Several days later, her family received a letter postmarked from Kansas City, saying that she had left to start over and that she was fine. The letter had many errors in spelling and grammar, mistakes that Paula would have never made. Her family took the letter to police. Meanwhile, John's brother Don and his wife Helen were trying to have children for a number of years, but it wasn't going very well, and they were considering adoption and turned to John to see if he could help them. Just before Christmas in 1984, John began approaching women's shelters and hospitals, telling social workers and operators that he'd started the Kansas City Outreach Program to help pregnant women or those with newborns. He planned to help them with a place to live and get back on their feet, but he gave off a bad vibe and social workers felt uneasy about his timing and that he seemed a little desperate to find a young mother. After Christmas, he connected with Lisa Stanzi. She was 19 with a four-month-old daughter named Tiffany. Lisa had been married briefly, but when that didn't work out, she ended up at a shelter. 
John rescued her and whisked her off to a room at the Roadway Inn Hotel that he paid for. One day, he asked Lisa to sign four blank pieces of paper. She was scared and called her mother-in-law Betty in tears. Betty told her not to sign anything and calmed her down. Then Lisa announced, here they come now, and hung up the phone. No one knows who they were or exactly what happened. It's thought that he returned to the hotel and picked up Tiffany. The Kansas City Star reported that John took Tiffany home to Nancy. The snow was falling and he arrived with her in his arms. She had no other clothes, diapers, or formula. He called his brother John and Helen in Chicago and said that a woman had just committed suicide and her baby girl was up for adoption. John had adoption papers forged and picked up his brother and his wife at the airport. They signed what they believed to be legitimate adoption papers and paid John $5,500. At John and Nancy's house, they posed for photos, and in one of them, John is seen holding Tiffany. Catherine Clampett was 27 in June 1987 when she moved from Texas to Kansas to be near her brother. She was a tiny little thing, less than 100 pounds and only 5 feet tall with black hair and brown eyes. She answered a newspaper help wanted ad that John had put in the local newspaper for his management consulting firm. The ad promised extensive travel and a new wardrobe. Then, on June 15th, she disappeared. Her brother contacted police, and although John was the main suspect, they couldn't tie him to her disappearance. Later that year, John was sent to prison for violating probation from a previous theft conviction years earlier. He served six years at the Western Missouri Correction Center, and while working in the prison library, he met librarian Beverly Bonner. Her husband was a prison doctor. John had a way of turning on the charm, so much so that when he got released in 1993, Beverly left her husband to be with him. After her divorce, she collected nearly $1,000 a month in alimony, and one day she wrote a letter to friends and said she was taking a job overseas. Then she disappeared. Over time, one of Beverly's brothers received letters in the mail that were supposedly from his sister, saying she was traveling abroad. In California in 1993, Sheila Faith, who was 45, met John through a newspaper ad. Sheila took care of her 16-year-old daughter, Debbie, who had cerebral palsy and used a wheelchair. John offered to help them out financially, so they moved to Kansas to be with him. Mother and daughter were last seen in the summer of 1994. Family members never heard from them again. John killed both Sheila and Debbie with a hit to their heads with a hammer. Hard enough, it punched a hole in their skulls and they were rendered unconscious. John lifted each of their bodies and folded them into two large yellow metal barrels. He then drove them to his Raymore storage locker sealed the lids closed, shut the door, and drove away. The internet and online world opened a whole new set of doors for John. While still married, he used alias such as Slave Master to seek out women looking for sex. The internet fed his fetish for bondage dominance and women willing to be his sex slave. Although always the con artist, he lied to them saying he was a successful businessman that traveled to exotic places around the world. Come, be my slave. I'll take care of you. 
and women fell for it. One of them was Isabella Lewicka. When she was 15, she immigrated from Poland with her parents and younger sister. Her father was a physics lab coordinator at the university, and her mother an assistant research scientist in the pharmacology department. Isabella, like her parents, was very intelligent. She loved art and enrolled in the fine arts degree program at Purdue University in Indiana. In June 1997, she completed her freshman year when she announced to her parents she was moving to Kansas for an internship. She was 19 and independent and told them very little. Isabella signed a contract to be John's slave and spent two years with him. She was a regular customer at a local bookstore. Her interests were in horror, vampires, witches, and the supernatural. In July 1999, she mentioned to the owner that she'd be leaving town to travel. At some point, John talked her into signing blank pieces of paper and writing out addresses of her family members on envelopes. John hit Isabella in the side of the head with a hammer, so hard that it rendered her unconscious. She did not even have a chance to defend herself. He then folded her body in the fetal position and lowered her face down into a large yellow barrel along with a pillowcase with a green diamond pattern. He took the barrel with Isabella's body to the 16 acres he owned in Lynn County and left it outside, sitting under a tree. Isabella was 21. Isabella's father received an email supposedly from her that she was traveling in China but he didn't believe it was her. He and his wife made a trip to Kansas City to the address she had given them, but it turned out to be a mailbox service. A month before Isabella was murdered, an old acquaintance of John's moved to Kansas to be near him. Over a span of 35 years, he and Barbara Sandre had kept in contact. Their time together was sporadic because John told her he worked for the CIA. They rented a duplex. It wasn't furnished, but he told her not to worry. He had furniture and storage. Among the household items, Barbara discovered hundreds of books on the supernatural and a set of sheets with a green and diamond pattern, but no pillowcases. A painting signed by John was hung on the living room wall. What she didn't know was that the artist was Isabella. In court, a woman who publicly remained anonymous testified that in the fall she advertised in a newspaper for a man to financially take care of her in exchange for sex. John answered her ad, and they agreed to 2000 per month, plus he'd pay the rent on her apartment, and she would be available to him any time. Then he suggested she work for him and go on business trips to Europe and Australia, he told her they'd be busy traveling and instructed her to write letters to her family ahead of time, and they'd mail them on their trip. He then proposed to her with a wedding band that was obviously used. She wasn't impressed with his offer and turned him down and ended their relationship. Suzette Troughton was the youngest of five children. She and her mother Carolyn were close and talked almost daily. Suzette had two tiny Pekingese dogs named Pika and Harry that went everywhere with her. On February 13, 2000, Suzette told her family and friends about a great job opportunity. 
making 60000 a year, caring for John's elderly father. She packed up and moved with her two dogs from Michigan to Canvas into a hotel that John had paid for. But it turned out the hotel didn't allow dogs, so John took them to a local vet to board them. At this point, John was unemployed, and his wife was a manager of a mobile home park. And John's father? He died years earlier. On March 1st, Suzette had been in Kansas a couple weeks. She called her mum, excited and telling her she was about to leave on a sailing trip with John and his father. But instead, John swung a hammer and struck her on the left side of her head. So hard that it punctured a hole in her skull. She didn't even have a chance to raise an arm in her defense. He checked her out of the hotel and loaded her things into a pickup truck. He folded her nude, lifeless body into the fetal position and placed it face down into a large yellow barrel. He sealed it and left it outside under a tree at his property in Lynn County. Suzette was 28. That day, John picked up Suzette's dogs and took them home to the mobile home park. He then told his wife Nancy that two dogs were running loose in the park, so he put them in their yard and asked her to contact Animal Control. Suzette's family started getting emails from her. Then they received letters mailed from Mexico. The letters were neatly typed and arrived in yellow and pink pastel envelopes. Suzette's family knew they weren't from her. Her grammar wasn't great, nor was her typing. Her mother contacted police and told them to find Suzette's dogs because she wouldn't go anywhere without them. ABC News reported that police discovered Animal Control had picked up two dogs from the mobile home park and visited the home of a family that adopted one of the dogs. And when the detective called Pika by name, his ears perked up, his tail started wagging, and he ran over to him. By now, police were looking to John and his ties to the disappearances of Isabella and Suzette. They were following John, including trips he made to his Lynn County property. And at one point, they went through his trash outside his house. There, they found a bag of shredded documents. And when they pieced one of them together, they discovered John had a storage locker in Raymore, Missouri. That spring, two professional women each placed a personal ad on the internet. Both were interested in the bondage and discipline lifestyle. John replied to both their ads. The first woman traveled from Texas to Kansas City to meet with John and brought along $500 worth of equipment. During their time together, he took photos of her, and when she found the relationship a little rougher than what she was interested in, she returned to Texas and demanded he return her equipment, but he refused and threatened to publicly reveal the photos so she called police. A month later, the second woman traveled from Texas to Kansas City to meet with John. He took photos of her as well, and she too found the relationship a little rougher than what she was interested in and also went to the police. John and his wife Nancy had been married 38 years by now, and Nancy knew that for the last 18 years, John had been carrying out numerous affairs but she chose to look the other way. She also knew that he had storage lockers in Olaf and Raymore. In court, it was revealed that on June 2nd, in John's Olaf storage locker, detectives found dozens of pieces of stationery and greeting cards. The blank pages were signed by Suzette and Isabella. 
They also found envelopes addressed to their family members. And in a brown leather briefcase, they discovered Suzette's social security card and birth certificate. And in a box, they found Isabella's driver's license and a photo of her lying on a bed with sheets with a green diamond pattern. The next day, police searched John's Lynn County property. A search dog led police to an area beside a storage shed. Under a shade tree were two large yellow barrels. The Kansas City Star detailed how Lenexa Police Sergeant Rick Roth rolled both barrels to an open space and stood the first one upright. He noticed a small bead of reddish liquid trickling from the lid down the side of the barrel. He called over crime scene investigators, and using pliers they removed the metal bands that sealed the barrels. When the lids were removed, they stared down at two decomposing bodies. Investigators believed they were looking at Isabella and Suzette. Police then went to John's storage locker in Raymore. There, they found three more large yellow barrels. Inside, they found the bodies of three women they didn't even know were missing. John was arrested at his home in the mobile home park that he shared with his wife. The media dubbed him the Internet's first serial killer. Over 15 years, he had killed eight women. Bail was set at five million. He was charged with two counts of capital murder in Kansas for Isabella and Suzette, and three counts of first-degree murder in Missouri for Beverly, Sheila, and Debbie. In court, it was revealed that when his brother Don and his wife Helen learned of John's arrest and his potential involvement with Lisa's disappearance and her baby, they searched the internet and found a picture of Lisa and Tiffany, but they didn't think their daughter looked like the baby in the photo. Meanwhile, police had been tipped off about Tiffany, and an examiner at the crime lab compared their daughter's footprints to Tiffany's on file at the hospital when she was born, and they were a match. DNA tests also confirmed she was Lisa's daughter. Later, Dawn and Helen legally adopted her. On December 7th, officials added 54 counts of forgery for the checks he cashed sent to Beverly, Sheila, and Debbie. A few months later, in February 2001, additional charge of aggravated kidnapping was added for Suzette, two counts of aggravated sexual battery against the two women he sexually assaulted, and one count of felony theft from stealing from one of the women, and aggravated interference with parental custody for taking Tiffany across state lines without her mother's consent. On February 5th, John's preliminary hearing into Isabel and Suzette's murders began. A maintenance man at John's Lynn County property testified that John had asked his mother, who was visiting from Mexico, to take some letters back with her and mail them. The envelopes were pastel-colored, the same type Suzette's family had received. And remember the green diamond pillowcase found with Isabella's body and the matching sheets in the photo of her? They were the same sheets John had given to Barbara. Isabella's mother testified that she had bought them for her daughter. The hearing ended after five days. Prosecutors had called 50 witnesses. The defense did not call any witnesses. John's trial in Kansas began on October 7, 2002. In his storage locker, they had found a receipt for the Roadway Inn in 1985 with Lisa's name on it. 
and crime lab examiners testified to prints they found during the investigation that belonged to John. His palm print was identified on a plastic sheet covering the barrels in the storage locker. Another palm print was found on checks made out to Sheila and Debbie, and his fingerprints were found on checks made out to Beverly. His DNA was found on an envelope used to mail a letter to one of Beverly's brothers. The jury witnessed firsthand two of the large yellow metal barrels when they were wheeled into the courtroom. It took the jury less than a day to deliberate, and on October 29th, John was found guilty. Two months later, he was sentenced to death. In Missouri, he was offered a plea deal for the remaining five murders in hopes he would lead them to the bodies of Paula, Catherine, and Lisa. Although he accepted the deal, that did not happen. To this day, their bodies have never been found. John resides on death row in Kansas. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Marjorie Deal Armstrong, a gifted musician with a magnetic personality who became a black widow. Brian thought the bomb was a fake, but realized it was real. Marge held him down, placed the bomb around his neck, and locked it. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.